Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little-known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. The start of the Great Depression was a time of great ferment for Texas. The big city was a place where rural and urban, tradition and modernity collided and colluded. Out of the fertile ground came a new kind of music, a mix of jazz and down home, that would come to be called Western Swing. Writer Joseph Abbott and expert Dr. Jean Boyd guide us through the twists and turns of how Western Swing was born. Welcome, Joseph and Dr. Boyd. Thanks. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Joseph, can you set the stage for our discussion on Texas Swing? Sure. In the early 1930s, cities are getting bigger because a lot of people from the country are moving there. But that's not entirely by choice. It's not all young adults looking to escape the small town. A lot of them are chased to the cities by the double whammy of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, the horrific drought going on at the time. They're in the city because they have to be, but many don't like it. They're homesick. One of the cures for that homesickness is to bring the traditional music with them and dance to it. Dr. Boyd, tell us about what the music was like. Western Swing grew out of the Texas fiddle tradition and string uh, band tradition. The string band uh, in the Southwest consisted of a fiddle, a guitar, possibly more than one guitar, banjo, maybe, bass, maybe. But this was the band that played for dances. And prior to the Depression, uh, where so many uh, rural people moved into town, these bands were playing mostly at ranch dances, where the ranchers would throw a dance, and, and ranchers from all around would come and bring their families and spend a day or two. And the swing, uh, the string bands provided the dance music. Um, when rural Southwesterners moved into urban areas during the Depression, looking for jobs and trying to escape the Dust Bowl conditions, um, this this music went with them, and it's still the string band. It was still the ensemble that played their dance music, but now instead of playing at a ranch house, uh, it was playing uh, in a house in town for house dances. And the people would simply roll up the rugs if they had any, and the string band would play, and people would dance, uh, sometimes to get enough money to pay the rent. Um, also, there were outlying dance halls that catered specifically to rural inhabitants of cities like Houston or Dallas or Fort Worth. And, and I mean not right in the middle of town, but outlying dance right. halls. And these string bands would play in these places as well. Well, didn't radio play a big part in all this? It did. Radio play, played a huge part. In fact, radio is part of the reason that string bands converted into swing bands. Because the radio brought 
all of the music, Tin Pan Alley pop music, all types of jazz, uh, light classics, uh, even a certain amount of sacred music that was heard on the radio. And a lot of this music was created um, in northern parts of the country, in northern cities. But through the radio, uh, Southwesterners uh, could hear this music, and the musicians were drawn to it. They were drawn to it because they had a natural proclivity to improvisation anyway. And especially when they listened to a jazz band, be it a Dixieland jazz band or a swing band, one of the uh, larger swing bands, um, they wanted, that's the music they wanted to play. They did not want to be perceived as, as country pickers. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to be perceived as jazz musicians, and so they incorporated elements of jazz into their performances. The other big thing about radio for the dance bands was it was sort of like a MySpace page or a YouTube video would be today. The dances were where the bands made their money, but to get the dance gigs, they had to have the radio exposure. Okay, this story comes from California, and a bit later on, but it still illustrates the point. Back in 1993, Dr. Boyd talked to Western swing violinist Bobby Bruce about his days at a radio station in Fresno. Let's listen. We had a daily radio show with Luke Wills at 6.15 in the morning and another one and another one at noon or something like that. And then we'd take off and work up and down the San Joaquin Valley. And... Uh, I remember that we'd just make it in like if we were working in some town up and down the valley like Bakersfield or something like that. You work till 2 in the morning. You get back to Fresno after you'd packed the bus and drove in, and it would be 4.30, quarter to 5. At 6.15, you have a radio show, so we'd sleep in the parking lot for 45 minutes and then get on into the building and we had this radio announcer. He had this enthusiasm, and here we are, bleary-eyed, half drunk, you know. And we had slept for 45 minutes in the parking lot, and we go in to do this show with toothpicks to hold our eyes open, you know. And he says, it's the music of Luke Wills and his Rhythm Busters. And we're so, <laughs> we, we can hardly keep our eyes open. <laughs> or keep the, our... the reason that so many uh, Texans um, and Okies uh, made the move from Texas and Oklahoma out to California was because the Depression was evidently not as severe there. They certainly didn't have the Dust Bowl conditions. And in, in places like the San Joaquin Valley, um, Agriculture was thriving. And so this is just a mass exodus from Texas, especially West Texas and Oklahoma, to places like the San Joaquin Valley in California. And, of course, they wanted the music that they had had back home. And consequently, you've got this large population of Texans and Oklahoma, former Oklahoma residents, and the bands... Uh, began to tour 
the swing bands began to tour out in California, and the audiences were there. Anyway, these guys understood the power of radio, both figuratively and literally. The higher powered the transmitter, the bigger area the station reached, the more chances these bands would have for gigs. So we're back in the late 20s, early 30s. You've got all these influences lining up. The stage is set. What happens next? Well, if you're telling this the Hollywood way, there's got to be the fateful meeting. (laughs) And the best candidate for that is likely to be a house dance that took place in Fort Worth in late 1929 or early 1930. The Wills Fiddle Band, Bob Wills on fiddle, Herman Arnspiger on guitar, was providing the music, and at some point someone requested St. Louis Blues and asked a guy at the dance named Milton Brown to sing it. Here's Brown singing the song with his later group, the Musical Brownies. Come here and tell me, baby, whose muddy shoes are these? Come here and tell me, baby, whose muddy shoes are these? So Wilson Arnspiker were much taken with Brown's singing and asked him to join their band, and he did. As it turned out, that also meant that they gained a publicist, didn't it? Yes, this is true, because um, Milton Brown came from a, a background of sales. He had been a cigar salesman before he was laid, laid off from that job. And he did, to some extent, begin to promote the band. Uh, he was instrumental, although uh, there is some argument. Milton Brown was was not the leader of the band, nor was Bob Wills. They were all working together. But with his connections, Milton Brown was able to get them uh, gigs to play, like house dances. Um, He got them a regular Saturday night gig at a place called Eagles Lodge Hall on 5th Street in Fort Worth. And he also uh, worked a deal with Sam Cunningham at Crystal Springs Resort so that the band could play regularly at Crystal Springs. It was a, a fishing place and a swimming pool and a dance hall all com- combined. And where was, the, where was Crystal Springs? Crystal Springs uh, Resort was, it was outside of the city limits of Fort Worth. One of the things I love about this story is that the band's big hangout was a furniture store. Because, yeah, when I think of jazz hotbeds, I think of furniture stores. (laughs) But it actually makes sense when you think about it, because back then, radios and record players were furniture. And the guy who owned the store, his name was Will Ed Kemble, had a pretty extensive selection of jazz and pop records. And so the band would gather there at the store to listen to them and to rehearse. And it was Kemble who convinced the band to audition for a show at a lower-powered Fort Worth station called KFJZ. And they got the show? They got the show. And the engineer at the station, Truett Kimsey, who had become the band's announcer, went looking for a sponsor. And the company he approached was Burris Mill, which made light-crust flour. Now, again, in the Hollywood movie way of telling things, this is where the villain appears. And like all the best villains, he starts off seeming to be a big, huge benefactor. He was the general manager of Burris Mill, and his name was W. Lee O'Daniel. Yes, the same W. Lee O'Daniel who in another eight years would get himself elected governor of Texas. The way he would get there, or at least get started toward there, was to hitch his wagon to the rising star of Wills, Brown & Company, but it would be a little while before he saw reason to do that. See, 
O'Daniel didn't approve of dance halls or the sort of people who played in them or the sort of music they played. That the Crystal Springs audience included folks like Bonnie and Clyde didn't help. So he wasn't what you'd call real enthusiastic about this idea, but he understood the power of radio in a way that few others did, one of the big traits that would soon enough get him to the governor's mansion. And in his job, the biggest commandment of all was sell more flour. (laughs) Besides, the price was right for an experiment. KFJZ, low power, low ad rates, less than a tenth of what he'd pay for the same maritime on WBAP. So he decided to take a flyer on the show, and a Texas institution was born. The show was an instant smash. And less than a month later, O'Daniel canceled it. Oh, my. Why did he do that? Well, he never said why he did that, so this is mostly supposition. He did make it perfectly clear that he didn't trust dance musicians. He didn't trust their morality. Ah. Uh, But also, I'm just guessing here that he didn't feel like he had as much control as he wanted to have over what was going on, so he just fired them. Ah. Happy didn't like it, he fired them. In the meantime, he had them working in the mill. I see Bob was uh, driving a delivery truck. Milton was out trying to sell flour, and Herman was sweeping up the dust. And this is downtown Fort Worth, you know. So uh, he had them going in there at 8 o'clock in the morning, staying at 5, doing all that, and then just playing the program and, and then going back to work. Well, so when Fappy fired him, he got so much mail and everything, he realized he had something there that was... It was worse than it. So I had a tiger by the tail, so he wanted to harm back. And so Bob and Milton go to him and said, Well, we'll come back, but we're not going to work anything except music. Pappy says, Okay. Uh, you punch the time clock in at 9 o'clock, and, and while we're not rehearsing our program, I want you to be learning new tunes and practicing, and you punch out at 5 o'clock. So the Light Crest Doughboys are back on the air. And Burris Mills is selling more flour, and O'Daniel is starting to see opportunity. Eventually, the Doughboys go out on a tour where Kimsey, stuck at KFJZ, is unable to accompany them. O'Daniel elects himself announcer, and then, with Truett Kimsey out of the picture, moves the show to WBAP. He can easily afford their rates now, and he wants the bigger power and the, and the bigger audience. And even that's not big enough. So he forms the Texas Quality Network and hooks together WBAP with other high-powered stations like KPRC in Houston, WOAI in San Antonio, and WKY in Oklahoma City. That last being important to what comes after, as we'll see. By the way, you can tell we're dealing with the real old-time stations here by the number of them whose call signs start with W. It's not until later that W comes to be used only east of the Mississippi. Hmm. So now the Light Crust Doughboys have a really big audience, or more to the point as far as he's concerned, O'Daniel does. And O'Daniel starts taking over more and more of the broadcast for himself. To him, it's become his show, and the Doughboys are just his backing band. Well, how bad did it get? Evidently, it got pretty bad. Uh, O'Daniel really did take on this, the, take over the show. Uh, he began writing and reading poems and orating. He considered himself a great speaker. 
He refused to give the names of the band members like they didn't matter. He imposed limits on what the band could play. He uh, critiqued the titles. For example, uh, they were not supposed to use the term jazz on the radio. Mm -hmm. And one of their favorite songs or tunes, uh, the beer, Beer Barrel Polka, they could not refer to the word beer. So it could be either be called Barrel Polka or... Uh, roll another, out the barrel? Yeah, roll out the barrel. But no beer. No ah. beer. But more importantly, he would not let the band play in dance halls. And quite honestly, this is where the money was to be made, playing in dance halls. Milton Brown... Um, had a large family to support, and his brother Durwood, who had been playing rhythm guitar from the inception of the Light Crystal Boys, was married and expecting a baby. And so Milton went to O'Daniel and asked O'Daniel to go ahead and hire Milton uh, and put him on the regular payroll. And O'Daniel said no, he refused. Um, and, and if you added that, that was probably the straw that, that ended it for Milton Brown. But if you add that to the fact that they couldn't play dances and that Milton was not free to do what he wanted to in the band, well, Milton Brown left. And he formed his own band uh, called the Musical Brownies and uh, experienced all the freedom he had never had working with W. Leo Daniel. doing while all this is going on? Largely sympathizing. This is a lot of the stuff he'd like to be doing, and he too is chafing under Pappy's hand. But it takes another year almost before Wills finally leaves the Doughboys. And this is when he moves south to Waco to WACO. I love that. How, do you know there's only a couple of other stations that get to name themselves after their hometown like that? And forms the Playboys. How long did that last? Not very long, um... Bob Wills left the Playboys oh, about 11 months after uh, Milton Brown did and came down to Waco and started a band, which he just referred to as the Playboys. And this, this band was going pretty well. He was doing fine. And W. Leo Daniel comes down and takes uh, Bob Wills to court because they were using the phrase formerly of the Light Cresto Boys. And the judge immediately threw this out. This was ridiculous. Uh, but Bob Wills wanted to put some distance between himself and W. Leo Daniel. He was a powerful man. So he moved up to Oklahoma City uh, to WKY. Um, but WKY was a part of, of the network that uh, O'Daniel had put together. So O'Daniel followed uh, Bob Wills up to Oklahoma City and got him fired off of, of WKY. So the Playboys just went to Tulsa and radio station KVOO, and there they found a manager who would not bend to W. Leo Daniel, and that became their home. I asked Bob. It was, uh, it was unheard of. It, you know, a fiddle band, string band, I mean, that's what country music was. And I said, what in the hell do you want with a drummer in a fiddle band? 
and Bob would bid his cigar and <laughs> poke me in the chest. He said, I won't take your kind of music, my kind of music, put it together and make it swing. And then he adds horns. Yes, he did. Bob Wills loved horn bands. He really liked mainstream jazz with the horn bands. So he started off adding band, adding horns. Uh, at first, it was just a couple of horns, maybe a trumpet player, a clarinet player, or saxophone player. But by the early 1940s, Bob Wills had a complete horn section. He had a horn line, he had a string line, uh, he had such a versatile band, he could play anything and everything. Meanwhile, of course, as Wills gets successful, one of the first things he does is sign up a rival flour mill as his sponsor, getting his poke in the eye back at Pappy O'Daniel. What ultimately happened to him? Well, he turns out to be one of those folks who talks a good game about the Ten Commandments, but doesn't really think they apply to him. According to Smokey Montgomery, he gets caught pocketing the proceeds from Doughboy's concerts, money that was supposed to go to Burris Mills, and also using mill workers to do personal work at his farm. So Jack Burris, the mill owner, fires him. And in the Hollywood movie, that would be the end of the story. The hero triumphs and the villain gets his comeuppance. In real life, of course, remember, he got fired from Burris Mills, but the Texas Quality Network, the radio network, isn't tied to Burris Mills. It's his. So all he does is get his own mill selling his own brand, Hillbilly Flower, and hire a band, the Hillbilly Boys, notionally led by his son, Pat, that knows its place and won't get any ideas and he immediately starts going great guns on the radio again. You know, in a way, leaving the Doughboys was as liberating for him as it was for Milton Brown and Bob Wills. He might pretend to be selling flour, but the real product he was now completely free to sell was Pappy O'Daniel, and he sold his way right into the governor's mansion and eventually into the U.S. Senate. It was the famous only election defeat ever for Lyndon Johnson. And what about the heroes? Well, Milton Brown died... Uh, as a result of a car crash. He didn't, didn't die instantly, but he died about three days afterwards. Apparently he had a punctured lung, a broken rib and punctured lung, and he developed pneumonia and he died. Um, and that meant that um, Bob Wills nowadays is given solo credit for creating Western Swing, but if anyone could be called the creator of Western Swing, it's probably Milton Brown. And I would, I would add this to that. Western Swing came from everywhere. Uh, there were so many bands doing similar things at the same time, but it appears, just by dates, that Milton Brown was the first uh, band leader to record what we think of as Western Swing. So, Dr. Boyd, you've been campaigning for a while now to get Western Swing acknowledged as being jazz. Yes, I have. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting to me uh, how people argue against this. They're, I've been told that uh, jazz is an urban music and Western Swing is rural and therefore doesn't count as jazz. I've been told that the instrumentation is a problem. Well, people who say this are forgetting that even Dixieland jazz occasionally had violins in the front line. Okay. Sure. 
Um, and then there's the repertory issue. True, most mainstream jazz bands don't play fiddle tunes, but Western swing bands play fiddle tunes plus big band swing arrangements and Dixieland arrangements and every other kind of jazz. And the latest thing I heard, some jazz scholars said, well, the phrasing is different. The phrasing isn't right. Well, excuse me. The Western <laughs> swing musicians were in many ways taking their phrasing from the recordings that they were hearing in the radio programs where they were hearing mainstream uh, jazz being played. So they, they got at least some of their ideas about phrasing from the radio and recordings. You know, there's a pretty big elephant in the room that we've been mostly talking around for the last half hour, and that's race. It's probably taken as assumed, but just to be clear, all the Western swing musicians we've been talking about are white. They freely acknowledge black influences, but they themselves are all white. Well, I don't know a single racist musician, and I interviewed for my first book over 60 musicians, and race was was not a concern. They all talked about the African-American musicians from whom they had learned. Um, there's a, a story that uh, Smokey Dacus tells about uh, his chicken wire story. Um, they were playing in a club, and um, when, when the band got into the club, and Dacus was with Bob Wills, Texas Playboys, when they got into this club, they noticed this chicken wire strung up in front of the bandstand. And somebody asked what that was for, and the proprietor explained, well, that was for the one time a week when an African-American band uh, played at this particular club, and the white folks in the audience would throw things at them. Oh, my. And so, yes, racism is a part of, of any discussion of jazz, whether you're talking about mainstream jazz or Western swing, the racial issues are part of that discussion. Right. But it was more from outside, not from the bands Not from themselves. the musicians themselves, from the audiences. Atlantic Online writer Andrew Sullivan, who came here from Britain, talks about how he immediately noticed how deeply black culture is woven into American culture and has been since the birth of the Republic. It's not anything new. Look, the stereotypically Southern instrument, the banjo, where did that come from? Africa. And he's mainly talking about blacks, but it's not just blacks. Go back to what Dr. Boyd said about how many cultures contributed to Western swing. That's America. Now, you can turn that around and call it theft, cultural appropriation. Thank you, Joseph Abbott, for your excellent work on this show. Let's get a last opinion from Dr. Boyd. Dr. Boyd, what would the musicians you've interviewed call it? They would just call it using all of their resources. Um, all jazz musicians use their ears, their minds, they listen, they absorb everything around them. Um, that's a part of their creativity, being able to take what they've heard and make it their own. So all musicians do this. Dr. Boyd, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your great expertise on swing. Uh, can you set up this next recording for us? I sure will. Bobby Bruce, great fiddle player. I interviewed him in the early 90s uh, at his home in California. We had a great talk, and this is from that interview, and he's, gonna, he's going to verify what I said. They were playing jazz. They used to take one song a week and put it aside. We'd take our pick of whatever we'd like to play and kick around, and they'd give us like five minutes of airtime to 
to pass some choruses out and have some fun with it, you know. Mm -hmm. and, oh, God, that was fun. But it shows you that it was nothing but jazz. Yeah. You know, it was, you just put a, a put a 10-gallon hat on it, but it was jazz. It was jazz. <laughs> These and more oral memoirs by Western Swing musicians are available at the Texas Collection on the Baylor University campus. You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by the generous support of William and Kathleen Wardlaw, the Texas Collection Guy B. Harrison Jr. Endowment Fund, and the Baylor University Libraries. Mm -hmm.